Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by Hired. Hired matches outstanding people with the world's most innovative companies. At Hired, your dream job is waiting to apply to you. Instead of endlessly applying to companies hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with interesting opportunities. The best part is Hired is completely free to you. It won't cost you anything. In fact, they pay you to get hired. Head to Hired.com slash GSParty. Don't Google it. This URL is the only way to double the hiring bonus to $600. Once again, Hired.com slash GSParty. And now onto the show. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. We're going to do a different show today, which is we had some kerfuffles on scheduling. And we don't want to miss the show because we're all busy and <laughs> we want to keep it rolling. So ask us anything if you're on twitter if you're on some sort of social platform if you're right here in slack drop a note in there and i'm going to do my best to ask rachel and michael some questions about javascript the web platform what we're going what we're doing and you know michael maybe we can still talk about the the ico which is unique okay. is it the first yeah. of its kind initial coin offering no, no, no. There's been other ICOs for other cryptocurrencies. This is just, you know, one that's actually kind of related to JavaScript and the web because it's an attention token uh, that's going to be in the Brave browser uh, that relates to like your. It's like an it's an alternative to advertising and, and does micropayments instead. So. How do we can we mine it now? No, you can't. I don't. I, the, I don't think you can mine it that way. See, I, like, I didn't read the full thing. That the headlines seemed to me as if Brave was generating funding through rather than an IPO and ICO. Yeah, they did. Is that what's happening? Yeah. So, so what they did was they created a, a bunch of these coins. Uh, I'm not sure how many total, uh, but they released some of them and, and other companies have done a very similar thing where, you know, they want to get a coin onto the market. So they mine a bunch of it and then they say, okay, we're going to offer this to the, like this set amount of this coin to the public. Mm -hmm. Um, and then those go like on the open market and people buy them. Uh, and then now, now that those coins are in the open market, there's additional kind of speculation and trading on top of it. So Mm -hmm. they made 35 million. I think that the current market cap on the coins that went out is like a a little under a hundred million. So the people that bought them actually, you know, have, I think tripled their, the value so far. So is this becoming a way for people to go about raising funding in a different way or is this unique to brave or how they operate them being a browser so it, it does it does a couple things right so when you have certain types of these coins um you want to get a bunch of value injected into the network so you do a big public offering and then you've kind of bootstrapped a bunch of value around it um or you can you know give a bunch of these coins out and then get that money. Now, the way that that's treated by the IRS is like just straight up capital gains. Um, so you're going to get a pretty big tax penalty unless you do 
And, and I imagine that everybody who's raising more than a couple million dollars on these ICOs is probably doing this where they're they're filing some kind of company offshore to avoid some of those tax penalties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we want this uh, to be in the pre-show or, or somehow meld this into the ending? Oh, I, thought we, I thought we were we're live. We're I mean, live. Okay, fine. Put, we're live. Put, so put that in. Yeah, we're, you can just edit okay, we'll it. Do it live. <laughs> we'll do it live. So listeners of this particular JS party, it's a different type of show. Normally, you never hear me. Uh, I'm just behind the scenes uh, hoping that uh, everything goes well and keeping the mice on the uh, on the spinners, you know, creating electricity what? and stuff. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, the mouse race. I don't. I was thinking I fidget spinners. I thought this was like a millennial. Yeah, me reference. too. Well, sure. The, the mice are standing on the fidget spinners. And that's creating electromagnetism, which turns into electricity. Powers the house. Who does that? Uh, well, is some that people a, do. Is that a real thing? Uh, where do they do that at? They did that in uh, in Neighbors Two, uh, the movie. <laughs> Remember, they were trying to like take down the sorority, and they pulled the power, and it kept going <laughs> because they had all the minions in the other room riding like you know unicycles or whatever, uh, stationary bikes. We definitely are keeping this in. This yeah. has to be it. Okay, well, that's that's how we power the house, you know. So this, but back to this uh, this unique thing, uh, basic attention token. Mm-hmm. It's so foreign to me, you know. Ethereum based. We've done shows on this. I get it. I understand blockchain. I understand cryptocurrencies. I keep hearing more and more that they're coming of age. They're about to be mainstream, or they are mainstream, and just. There's a small mainstream. Who, know, who the heck knows? What's the state? Like, where where are coin in general being used? How? What is the state of this ecosystem? Cryptocurrency. The dark web. The dark web. <laughs> I have web. no idea. I don't know. I don't know anything about this. I know that, like, libertarians like Bitcoin, and that's about it. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. It depends on what you mean by that, right? Like, so... There's a bunch of different coins now. Um, I think that the primary ones right now are probably Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin. Um, Dogecoin. Dogecoin is is not, uh, I think, a major player at this point. I have seventy five thousand. Um, they better. You have seventy five thousand Dogecoins. Is yeah. it, those are probably worth something, actually. <laughs> no, it's not. It's worth like twenty dollars, maybe. It's the oh, only. No. I like it was the only one that compelled me to like figure out how to do mining. And I was like, cool. And it's worth nothing. Oh, you mined them. Wow. Okay. Um, I mean, I've bought some of them. Um, I I think honestly, like if you're just out with friends and you want to transfer some money between people, um, it is surprisingly the easiest way to do that currently. Like if you just have, um, Oh, what's the the app called? Let me look at my phone. Coinbase. If you just have like Coinbase on your phone, you can just use your phones to transfer money. Um, and it's it's like almost instantaneous. Bitcoin takes like 10 minutes, but it's, you know, it's it's actually just kind of a better way to trade around money like that. And you're seeing more and more services set up support for accepting Bitcoin as currency. So um, Bitcoin and, and some other currencies as well. So what I was talking about before with um if you pull out it out in cash, you you've made capital gains on that money. Um, so there's a lot of incentive to just keep the money being exchanged for other value inside of the system um, because it's not being treated as a currency, which is a weird 
mm-hmm. thing to think about, which is like by not treating it as a currency, you've actually um, inflated people's use of the currency in a way <laughs> because they don't want to pay the capital gains. So what you're saying um, is when you pull it out, so you take it from you take it out in cash, right? When you turn it into you know, your denomination, U.S., whatever, Deutsch, whatever, wherever you're at, whatever mm-hmm. your currency is, you turn it into what we consider maybe real dollars. I don't know, real, mm-hmm. real cash. At that point, you could be subject to capital gains. Yes, yes. And like, and I mean, and, and this also translates if you transfer it to other property and sell that property. So right, th- there actually course. is a company right now doing mortgages in Bitcoin. And um, if you, but, but if you buy that house, for, so, so here, say you put $5 into Bitcoin really early on, that's worth a uh, half a million dollars. And so you buy a half a million dollar house with Bitcoin, <laughs> um, with, with that mortgage. Um, you're good until you sell that house. And then when you sell that house, you owe capital gains from the $5 that you were initially put into, <laughs> into the, the currency. Mm. Right. You defer it by buying property. Yeah. I mean, you, you yeah, you defer it by exchanging property. Yeah. Um, so the way, the way that, that the SEC looks at um, and, and the IRS looks at um, cryptocurrencies is that they are property. So they're digital property that you own. They are, they, they fall under, uh, the laws about beanie babies and things like that. That makes sense. So that's (laughs) a good way to put it because they're still coins. You know, when you think about the name, the term, they're meant to signify currency of some sort, some sort of worth, some sort of value, but they're obviously not Mm -hmm. physical. You know, you can't touch your Bitcoin. Uh, Maybe you could, if you're really lucky, but I don't know, you know, but then they're just simply things you happen to take ownership in. Michael, you own yours. I own mine. Rich, you own yours. And once you use those, when you once you exchange that value for something else, it uh, it translates. So it's like stock in a way too, because you buy it at a certain price, and it may be worth something more or potentially less. Right, but so stocks are regulated quite a bit differently and looked at a little bit differently. Sure. But um, the concept of mean, that's what I mean by that. Not so much yeah, the yeah, full on yeah. regulations of stocks, just more like the principle of you buy it at a certain rate. So let's say a dollar and a month later it goes up and it's now a dollar 50. So the, the value could go up or could go down based on when you came in. This also happens to your currency in your pocket. There's inflation, True. there's, there's tr- currency exchanges and, and how valuable your currency is compared to other currencies. Like I've, <laughs> I've run into this a lot because I have a, a stack of money from other countries so that when I land in those countries, I can spend it. And this has not been a very good last five years to be holding currency, not in dollars. <laughs> so that's kind of sucked anyway. Um, so for blockchains, there's this whole side of things that's like currency speculation and, and, and it's it's a lot of uh, ostensibly gambling, like fun gambling, a um, lot of money flowing into it and gambling on, you know, this these exponential increases in the value of these digital coins. Um, but the underlying technology can solve a lot of problems outside of just currency exchange. Right. And, and outside of just like, you know, things that we need the, a currency to do. So there's an element of transparency and provability that without a centralized owner that is really important for a bunch of different use cases. And so the use case that Brave is going after with this basic attention token is essentially the ad market. So if you've ever read a bunch about the advertising market, especially online, there's a huge amount of fraud, huge amount of kind of fake clicks. There's everything from click farms to, you know, people just generating, you know, crazy wild numbers for, you know, what has and has not happened on, on different services and whatnot. So 
you really want to, if you want to try to solve that, you need something that is provable and has a lot of these elements of transparency and, and provability kind of baked in. So um, what they're looking at is this basic attention token. And so this is, you know, a provable way to show that you spent some attention on something. And so that could be used to prove that you um, saw an advertisement or saw some content. Or I, I think what they're they're probably betting on a little bit more than that is um, you can prove that people spent time on a site and then you can inject capital and money into where you spend your attention and that can be doled out as micropayments to those sites. So if you've used the Brave browser, that they already have this feature baked in where you can do these micropayments. Um, and so you can say, look, like I don't want to deal with advertising on, on websites. Like I hate all that kind of stuff, but I do want to support content creators. So I'm going to pour 20 bucks a month into wherever I spend my time. And what happens is that Brave tracks that in a way that is anonymized and protects your privacy, um, but also like allows them to kind of dole out some of that to, to all these different places where you're spending your time. That's pretty interesting. That, that ends up being a lot more money. I think for the users that put money into that system, if you're only putting $5, um, the sites that you go to are going to end up making more money than they would from advertising on that. I mean, advertising, you, you have to reach hundreds of thousands of people in order to make a menial amount of money. So, Yeah. And um, the upcoming JS party. So we're, we're on that show now. Um, but episode 15, which uh, includes Kyle Simpson, he mentioned something about, where we place our value at. And we talk a bit about this subject, not in particular, but like how, how users spend their time on the web. You know, the, the, the conversation was basically the chasm between native applications and web applications and how we often put them together when maybe they should be divided because of things like bandwidth and whatnot, inherent costs that just simply are maybe basically attained to, to bandwidth and the cost of bandwidth. So people in the U S don't typically have that issue because we have unlimited everything basically, but in other parts of the world, there's metered, you know, metered access to the internet. So the weight of things get a lot more expensive. So that was a conversation on there. And then also on a uh, request for commitment, you probably remember this with Brennan Ike talking about that, mm -hmm. you know, he's the founder of brave. So it would make sense to have this conversation with him back on that show. But we talked a bit about the early days of funding the web and he talked a bit about how it was all advertising driven. The browsers were, you know, I'm summarizing to some degree from my memory, but basically the history of browsers had this speckled history of, of advertising paying for a lot of things. And it, it's kind of interesting to see now where he's at and this basic attention uh, token being a thing where you can say, like you just said, put 20 bucks in and that money goes to where you spend your time on the internet. Yeah. I mean, I think what he's really dealing with and he's had to confront pretty head on is that having th this indirect market um, to fund browsers and, and the web through advertising um, has, cr has also created a huge market for fraud and malware and a bunch of other stuff. And um, it's, it's only gotten worse and everything that we've tried to do to try to you know, make it a little better hasn't really worked. Um, and so he's, you know, Brave is pretty proactively blocking tracking and blocking advertisements um, and just saying like, no, we're going to go with a, a different way to try to fund the web here and and remove a lot of this uh, malware and stuff. A lot of people are using Patreon uh, or Patreon, Patreon, mostly content creators. And what bums me out is seeing f crazily enthusiastic content creators pointing to and basically 
begging their their listeners or their audience or whatever to say support me and you go to their Patreon and they're getting like 13 bucks a month. Right? Like nothing upsets me more than seeing sure maybe it's amateur content so to speak and I say that loosely because it's not like mainstream media content for example like highly polished 16 20 people behind it it's one person two people maybe but there's somebody who's out there doing something on the web that's of value to others and they're essentially asking their audience to support it and you go to that patreon page and it's like 13 bucks a month like that's that's horrible it's not working well I, I think that when you look at how to fund content and, and we look at this a lot when we're talking about how to fund open source and how to have a sustainability strategy for open source, but you know, the, the world of content and art is, is, you know, as big and dynamic, there's, there's not one way to fund things and there's not content that, you know, necessarily appeals to, you know, every way of funding. Right. So it works really well for certain kinds of artists that have a really personal following. Um, and you know, a, small but dedicated following, I'd say. Um, I think that if you were making a couple million dollars a month on Patreon, you would probably stop getting new people putting in money, <laughs> regardless of how much the content yeah, but 13 make. bucks though, Mike. That's, that's like horrible. I, I know, but there's also a lot of people making like a living um, on Patreon true. as well. There are. Um, and, and those people that are making 13, you know, there may be a reason for that, right? Like there, it, there may be a perception that that person is, is already being rewarded in some other way or other people are actually paying for that content. And like, I've seen people on Patreon do this where like they, they make content and then the people that give them money on Patreon don't even get that content. They have to buy it through like iTunes or something. Mm. Um, and so like when you have that kind of stuff going on, like you, you know, people are just less incentivized. So I think it's going to work for some people and not for others. And to, to broaden it back out to blockchain in general, yeah. I think that there, you know, wherever you have, you know, transactions that you need to, to make transparent and you need to have some provability, there's a bunch of different use cases for that. Um, and a bunch of different things that we can do there. Uh, of course, you know, this, this being the tech industry, there's been a huge flood of money from venture capital and from, and a lot of hype from kind of everywhere that, you know, the blockchain is the solution to everything. And so if you have a startup and an idea and you add the word blockchain or AI to it, you will just get more money right now. And so there's a lot of, it's very, very overhyped. Um, but you know, there are a bunch of new things that we can do that we couldn't do before. And eventually those are the things that are really going to kind of, uh, shape new products and services, stuff like that. Let's let's get off of blockchain for a while. Yeah, let's, let's, let's I'll on. end that by just saying my my thought was that was that if this basic attention token is a a chance to push the web in a way where your attention speaks for itself and pays for itself, so to speak, is a better direction of a model hypothetically than a beggar slash will you support me model, right. This episode is brought to you by TopTal, a global network of top freelance software developers, designers, and finance experts. If you're looking for contract or freelance opportunities, apply to join TopTal to work with top clients like Airbnb, Artsy, Zendesk, and more. When you join TopTal, you'll be part of a global community of developers who have the freedom and flexibility to live where they want, travel, attend TopTal events all over the world, and more. And on the flip side, if you're looking to hire developers, designers, or finance experts, TopTal makes it super easy to find qualified talent to join your team. 
Head to TopTal.com, that's T-O-P-T-A-L.com, and tell them Adam from the Genius Log sent you. And by Sentry. Sentry is an open source error tracking application that shows you every crash in your stack as it happens. It gives you details to prioritize, identify, reproduce, and fix each issue. They also give you information to support your team, so you can use that information to reach out to those affected. Head to changelog.com sentry. Start tracking your errors today for free. Get off the ground with their free plan. Once again, changelog.com sentry. Tell me sent you. And now back to the show. some robotics topics to talk about. Now, Rachel, I understand that uh, you're a purveyor of, of robotics. You, you like this stuff. I dabble. You dabble. Sometimes you, you might even have fun doing it. What do you think? Yeah. Um, so I, I saw the question that was asked. And um, so the reason that I use JavaScript uh, in robotics is because I know JavaScript. Um, I don't know C. Uh, if I need to get into something that is, you know, a little bit um, more specific to see. I can work my way around it, but I can't write it from scratch. So um, basically, like, the reason that I think JavaScript is good for robotics and embedded hardware is because of the community that is involved that is available to the NodeBots community. Um, the Johnny Five site is amazing. The documentation is great. Uh, when I say robotics, too, I don't mean like very intense, uh, giant things. This is just like hobbyist level stuff. So like small little, um, you know, the sumo bots that can push each other out of circles or play soccer. And it's it's not like we're not changing the world, like <laughs> inventing anything uh, that's going to like revolutionize the way that modern machinery is made with JavaScript robotics, I don't think. But um, I think that it's a really interesting way to help people that are wanting to learn how to write node. And, um, you know, maybe they're just not grasping the way that it works with building a single page application. And I, I really like the way that the tangibility of, you know, even just taking a breadboard with LEDs and hooking it up to an Arduino and being able to write JavaScript, you can get stuff to happen. Not to mention, like, using LEDs for visualizing different types of loops is really a great way to help understand it. It helped me understand how that kind of stuff was done. Um, in terms of like performance-based stuff, obviously, you know, C is going to be faster than Node stuff. But uh, I feel like the all of the stuff that I've built hasn't really had any issues with um, the runtime or any like lag of whenever I, you know, do whatever action A triggers action B. So, I mean, the performance differences aren't really big enough to make a difference for the at least the hobby level stuff that I do with it. Well, and also, I think that there's a little bit of a difference between IoT and robotics, right? Like yeah, a lot definitely. of the, the 
like a lot of the IoT stuff, like, oh, yeah, you do have these use cases where you need it to be super low power because it's got to be on a little battery for a year. But with robotics, yeah. like you need you're going to be pretty high power anyway because you're, you're doing these pretty big movements and moving around heavy yeah. things. And so that means that you're going to have a higher powered onboard device and you can run, you know, node just as well as anything else that runs on that little embedded system. Yep. It would seem to me, too, that uh, going the route of C versus going the route of JavaScript, one might be a higher slash lower barrier to entry. Like you might have to have a lot of systems knowledge, maybe a lot of like just deeper knowledge about programming that C would require, whereas JavaScript, you can sort of like run that anywhere. It's a little bit easier to get involved. Dare I even say maybe a slightly larger, more welcoming community. So it's a little easier to find your place to, to fit in. Um, yeah. That, that seems like a pretty standard thing to think about as well <laughs> i i think i mean so i because i came from lower level languages and i and i watched kind of higher level languages um take over and and really like get get a lot more people using them than the lower level languages it's always hilarious to me when when people from higher level languages start to get into lower level languages um because they really ignore a lot of the things that um, higher level languages do for you. Um, like it's just so easy to make mistakes and see mistakes that like will still be compiled and your program will still run, but will, you know, introduce a security vulnerability or a memory leak or it's, it's very hard to make good, reliable programs in CMC plus plus. Um, and that's why we built higher order languages was so that you can stay within some some extra boundaries that will make it not just easier to program, but also uh, easier to not make mistakes. Yeah, I feel like that a lot of the libraries that allow people to get started with um, node bots like takes the mistake making part of the process out of it. Like the mistakes that you're going to make when you're doing it is more likely going to be your wiring than the programs that you're writing because so much of the sensors and modules that you're using already have the code written. You can pretty much just like copy and paste a ton of it and you're ready to go. And then you just have to, um, you know, learn a little bit about electricity and how circuits work. And then you can start combining things to make a lot more dynamic stuff. Can we rewind a bit and talk a bit about the the, the chasm or the difference between learning JavaScript in a single page web application scenario versus let's say robotics, where you'd mentioned interesting things around loops and blinking lights. Why is, why is it different? What's different about it? Um, for me, it's like a, it's your learning style thing. Some people are okay with grasping a concept and some people just really need to visualize what they're doing in order to understand it. Um, for me, like I'm a super visual learner and I think that's why I was so taken to, um, you know, the JavaScript robotics stuff because I could, I mean, I've been programming, this is like, I've been programming for, I don't know, almost half my life and I'm a programmer. I don't know, like data structures. I don't understand those things. Um, I just know what I know from repetition and building stuff. And I don't know, it's just nice when you can touch something that you've built versus just like looking at, I guess you could touch a computer screen, but it's a little bit different. Um, I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I think a more interesting question is actually like what is similar about like UI programming the browser to robotics and JavaScript? Because I think there's actually more similarities than differences. And when yeah. you look at a lot of the languages that people have built specifically for IoT, they're taking a lot of these like threading patterns that we have for um, basically the people have written for desktop programming and operating system programming and a lot of low level stuff. And um it's interesting that JavaScript in the browser didn't go that direction. They went this, the the direction of events. Um, you know, not you know, we we sort of talk a lot about asynchronous programming now, but just basic DOM events, right? Like when you click on something, something happens. Um, that's how robotics work, and that's how JavaScript robotics work, and it's actually very similar. And I, I feel like UI people actually have an easier time onboarding than, than people that are used to like, you know, threaded C++ programming that try to move into this evented environment. Uh, it depends on like the onboarding, obviously. Like if, if you can set somebody up with good documentation, then yeah, that's, that's good. Um, I feel like even five years ago, there was still not great documentation for a ton of like front end UI stuff. Um, at least I didn't have a good time with it. So if if you if you're getting into uh, JavaScript robotics or JavaScript hardware stuff in general, there's a lot of libraries out there, like everything in NPM. There's maybe even more <laughs> embedded systems that support this. Um, it's like the Atari 2600 days of computing. Everybody's got their own, you know, specialized board. Um, what you, you've messed with a lot of these, Rachel. Like, what do you recommend that people pick up as a as a first introductory uh, set of hardware, and what libraries would you point them at? Um, I think that if you don't know anything about uh, hardware at all, and you're wanting to get started, the best thing that I would suggest is the Johnny Five Starter Kit that comes with a Tessel. You can get it on SparkFun. Um, I mean, the the benefit of the Tessel versus an Arduino is like, the Arduino you're gonna have to flash with custom firmware, and if, if it's your first time using that kind of board, you might not necessarily know how to do that, but the Tessel just comes and it's ready to go, essentially. You've got, you just plug it into your computer and you can either you know, run the code from your machine the same way that you do with the Arduino and um, other boards, or you can just push the code up to the Tessel so it runs on the actual board, which is more similar to like the boards that have uh, embedded systems on them, which is really great. So plus it, it's ready for node out of the bat. And the projects that I think it gives you to build are um, there's like a little robot one. It comes with DC motors. I honestly just buy get the kits now because like whenever you go to conferences or something and there's people giving stuff away for swag, I just break everything apart into individual components I can use later, but there's there's a whole bunch of documentation that comes with it that helps you get up and running. Um, the other libraries that you can use are, um, Brian Hughes has a library that allows you to use JavaScript for the Raspberry Pi, which I only recently started using a Raspberry Pi. Um, the new Model 3 makes it a lot easier to be able to use without having to, you know, plug it into your router or SSH into it because you can um, use something called Pi Bakery to start your card up. So it already has um, the Raspbian uh, operating system on it. And then you can configure this thing called VNC Viewer, which lets you essentially it's it's like um it's like a virtual machine on your computer that you're actually logged into the Raspberry Pi with. So you see the whole 
um, Linux operating system. And I actually just built uh, this cool gallery out of a 32 by 32 LED matrix using a Raspberry Pi. And um, I'm running Node on the Pi. And I'm also running Node on a single page app that's hosted on Azure. And the way that it works is you, okay, so there's not a lot of good node libraries for the LED matrix. So all I did was install the C library that already works for displaying art on the matrix. And instead I have the node application listening over the IOT hub on Azure, and it just runs the C shell commands whenever it gets the message to display art, which is kind of hacky and cheating, but there's a lot of ways that you can like jump in and use node with a lot of things <laughs> don't I do love as those, I... <laughs> those are the best hacks i love that it's like <laughs> i kind of inadvertently like built a the world's hackiest node library for displaying art on an led matrix so you can you can too what else do we got so the point of uh an ask us anything kind of show us people asking questions but i guess michael and i might have some questions which we, we've already you can ask few. us questions not about JavaScript as long as they're safe for work. That's true. Yeah. We have many, many interests. I'm taking a break from bread making, so no bread I making questions. I was just going to say, ask no Michael bread about questions. bread. No, no. no. Got to take a break from that. I, I can tell you all about uh, ketosis, but I can't tell you about bread right now. Ketosis. <laughs> Uh, there's a question about IDEs. Um, so I, I've never used IDEs. I've always just used like straightforward editors. Um, but I've always been a little bit jealous of some of the features that nice IDEs have. Um, and eventually, eventually, I made my way to uh, Visual Studio Code. And Visual Studio Code is great because it it is an editor, uh, but it has a lot of the features that I've always wanted from IDEs. So I, I use Code now. I also use code, but I work at Microsoft. So, um, but did you use it before actually, when you worked there? No, I used um, uh, Sublime Text. Mm. But honestly, it doesn't really feel that different. Um, yeah, I actually I use Visual Studio Code um, with a bunch of you know like uh, syntax plugins for JavaScript and node debugging stuff. Um, it's great because the library I'm, I'm on my Mac right now as I type this, so I can't even open, well, I don't have it installed on here cause I just use this for the podcast, but, um, whoa, that was a weird noise. Um, it's really good. It, it like doesn't, it's, I've seen, so Michael's looking for a new computer right now <laughs> mm. and he's like asking people, um, you know, what, what should for? I get? Well, he just wants a laptop. But the reason I bring this up is because he said it on Facebook and some guy in his comments was like, "Ugh, dev work on a Windows machine. And I just wanted to be like, have you even tried? Because um, I don't know. It's just so nice, especially with um, Git for I don't know how to say this word correctly. Is it Ubuntu, Ubuntu, Ubuntu. whatever? Yeah, yeah. Git. The, the bash for that on Windows is fantastic. I have it running inside of Hyper, which is great. Uh, and so like my terminal and my code editor are beautiful and they run great and they're fast. Um, yeah. I, I think like, uh, th yeah, that was a weird comment, especially because like 
I mean, we have statistics on this from NPM, but there are more Windows users of NPM and Node.js than there are Mac users. So just really just marinate on that for a minute. Yeah, that's very surprising. I think that they're they're a little bit less vocal <laughs> on Twitter, but um, yeah, there's there's a lot of Windows. There's a lot of people that do development on Windows, like a, a very huge amount. Um, and one of the secrets to Node's growth, even early on, was having really quality Windows support, which uh, I, I don't think that people appreciate how different it is um, than say Python or Ruby or a lot of these other languages. Like it's really first class. But before we get off of IDEs, I did want to just um, I want to I want to get a list of your extensions, Rachel, because I have just found some new interesting extensions that I'm really happy about. Oh, um, so um, I I so you can put at installed into the extensions thing, and that'll show you the ones you have installed. So I have the the JS standard linter installed. I have npm IntelliSense, so that'll actually uh, do auto completion for the npm packages that you have, um, and obviously like the regular kind of IntelliSense. Also, search node modules, I think, is really cool. It actually like uh, searches your node modules directory for uh, auto-completion as well. Um, then, I have a, sorry, you're not done. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I have this Markdown preview one that's like super nice because I write a lot of documentation for the projects that I do, and it lets me preview it right in the window, which is cool. I don't have to like open it up or push it up. Uh, before I check out what it looks like. Yeah, what a pain, right? To ship to GitHub or something like that just to get a preview of your Markdown file. No, yep. that's not how you do it. How do I see what my settings are, Michael? <laughs> or how do I see which extensions I have? So when you click on that extensions thing in the, the left sidebar, at installed, yeah. will show you your installed if you put that in the search. Um, another one that I just installed recently that I'm loving is uh, called Virgin Lens. Um, it's so webby and great. So basically when you pull up your package JSON, it looks at all of the depths that you have. And on top of the depth says if there's newer versions like within this range, if there are newer versions, if there's like a newer current version that you're not getting because of your package thing. And each of those are just links. And when you click them, it updates the version um, in your package JSON. It's super nice. Um, so I have a lot. Well, not a lot. I have, um, since I also do... A bunch of like styling stuff. I have color highlight, which um, whenever you type hex colors in your browser, uh, it shows you what the color is around it, which is kind of nice. Um, and then I, I have like was default. I thought that was just on by default. Okay. I don't think so. Um, I have the Dracula official theme <laughs> installed because it's my favorite <laughs> theme. Mm. It's so I love nice. That it's official. <laughs> Well, it's because people try and use the name. It's like a really popular theme. It's really pretty. Um, it's nice. I have an HTML snippets one, which is similar to like Emmet. Uh, and then I have like SAS and Python and ESLint and also a Babel ES6, ES7 syntax coloring one. Um, and that's it. I should probably actually delete all of these and start new. Um, but yeah. Those are mine. I actually talked to Zena Rocha about uh, some Baxter on Dracula, which is pretty interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah. On episode 248 of the changelog, we talked to him about sort of like uh, his open source lessons learned, right? Like his first uh, introduction to open source was this jQuery boilerplate project. And so this is back in the day. And the very first 
uh, I guess pull request was one that deleted all of his code and said start again because it was crap, basically. So it was a horrible introduction oh, to open source, basically. Uh, we, we talked through that, and then finally we got to this scenario where he was talking about um, just just how he had, you know, his passion for making an editor look good. And he came up with this theme, Dracula, and and how it's just blown up since then. Like, he started off with one, and now it's been, you know, transplanted oh to everything, basically. Yeah, Vim, if you go, yeah, if you go to the Dracula site, it tells you um, all of the different places you can get it. Yeah. DraculaTheme.com is the URL. So if you're tracking that on a listener, if you're in the Slack, boom, there it is. That's a pretty interesting project. And it's it's funny that you did say official because there are many, many imitators, not often <laughs> duplicators. Uh, I also recently switched my um, my font for programming to operator mono. Mm. Which is not cheap, but it's beautiful and it's really easy on the eyes. Back to the, the I guess, sudden, somewhat of a surprise for developers on Windows to have an easy time. Wasn't there a time, though, where it was harder for them? I know maybe in the Ruby space, at least there was. And this is like late 2008, 2009 timeframe, 2006. It was like not easy to get set up. And so maybe there's uh, it really, some... It depends on the language that you write and what you needed to do. Because um, I've always had a Mac and a PC, and I've always programmed on both of them. Easily. So, no problem. Yeah, easily, no problem. I mean, maybe the stuff on my PC wasn't as attractive looking, and it was a little bit harder to like keep dot files uh, equal across uh, operating systems, but... In the past, like in the past few years, I haven't felt that way at all. I mean, also, I mean, I have the access to people that work on VS Code. So if I can't figure something out or if I want it to look better, I can message them and be like, help, mm. please. What uh, what do you think's changed for um, Windows, the, the platform? I think it's 100% Microsoft being more involved with open source. VS Code is completely open source. It's written in TypeScript. So it's really easy for people to make custom stuff for it. That's my opinion. Michael might have a better one. What do you think, Michael? I, I think that there's a larger transformation at Microsoft where they're moving from a platform company to a product company again. So like early Microsoft made products, they made languages for other people's computers, they made, you know, things, <laughs> they made spreadsheets and, and word applications. And then at some point they, they gained a monopoly over the operating system and they started to just kind of get lazy with product and, and strong arm everybody into just being on their platform. Um, and now that they've they've lost those monopolies in platform, they've become they've turned everything around, and Santi's really turned it all around um, to be a, a platform or, or to be a product company. And now they're you know to be a product company, you have to make things that people love. Um, like I, and I'm I'm con continually surprised by the things that I love from Microsoft. Like I use Outlook on iOS right now. It's a, it's a it's great actually. Really, <laughs> it's like a really good mobile email. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, the fact that I'm using a Visual Studio editor still blows my mind like if you if you told 1999 michael that that would happen and that they wouldn't be using them he'd punch you in the face um <laughs> <That's> so violent <laughs> oh 1999 michael had no scruples um so <laughs> anyway um that's funny yeah yeah i, I, I kind of feel yeah. the same way because like my transition to mac came from windows obviously 
which would make sense. And it, it was from a place where I just couldn't afford. And even to today, I still can't afford the, the, the Mac machines. Like they're still crazy expensive. And so it comes from one an economic standpoint. Surface pros are not cheap. I mean, I haven't compared the prices. They're, they're really nice hardware though, too. I mean, th- yeah. that's, that, that's really surprising. I haven't seen Microsoft make hardware that good, uh, like basically ever. <laughs> so what <laughs> I, you're I, saying it's is funny that- because I, I have heard complaints about the service pros, but all of the complaints have been in software or they've been like operating system things that people mm-hmm. don't like about windows. I haven't heard anyone, not a single person complain about the hardware. Well, that's the thing though, is that I think Microsoft has sort of, sort of like kept this bad name or this bruise, right? They got punched in the face as the, yeah, 2009 or 1999, Mike would have done punched Microsoft in the face because it just wasn't adding up. And uh, they were walking around with a, a fake black eye or something like that because it's not really there anymore. It's it's sort of done. I bought my mic just now, by the way. That was a lot of rumble. Um, <laughs> it, it's just not there anymore. So like they've changed, but everyone keeps the previous um, the previous opinion about them, even though it may not be warranted. Like the person in the Facebook comment you mentioned, you know, like that. Well. I know that like one of the things that people like harp on Microsoft a lot for is that everyone's like blue screen of death. It's so horrible. And like people love to take pictures of stuff out in the wild that have the the blue screen of death on and they can just be like, ha ha, look at Microsoft. Except I don't think that people realize that the reason there's a blue screen of death there is more often than not the reason because since they've made it so easy accessible for people to build their own custom stuff for windows the blue screen of death is windows as an operating system telling you that there is a problem uh and it's usually because of software that you're using that wasn't built by microsoft so it's like doing you a favor uh yeah i mean also like if there is a blue screen i think that they stopped doing that like 10 years ago in their operating system so these yeah. dumb kiosks have 10 year old operating systems of course they're awful yeah <laughs> of course well, they wrote awful software the on top kernel of it. panic in a on a mac before so it's not like it it's happened maybe a small handful of times my whole entire <laughs> use of a mac ever but i've seen that too you know also, kernel panics on Linux are like just part of using Linux. <laughs> it's not like this is like a solved problem there. Right. So what I hear you saying is that if you haven't in a while, revisit your opinion on Microsoft or Windows or any of their new devices out there as a platform for developers. I mean, obviously, I'm going to say yes, <laughs> but... Well, you know, um, say it from, you know, the true heart of Rachel versus the I work from Microsoft, Rachel. I mean, I don't bullshit. So if it wasn't good, I wouldn't say try it. Well, there you go. And I know that the people that are working on this stuff that are the tools for the developers are like legitimately super into feedback and wanting to know what the community wants. And since it's since there's like repositories on GitHub for all this stuff, if there's something you don't like, make an issue, like let it be known to the people that are working on it. Um, They would much rather hear from you in like official channels than read about somebody being like, I hate VS code on Twitter or something, because that's not going to help. We actually linked out to something on the news stack over the weekend in our weekly email about Microsoft's transition basically over these years. And we've kind of covered that to, to quite a degree. I can remember talking to uh, RNesh and a couple others at Node Interactive recently 
And these are like 10 year veterans at Microsoft, right? They've, they've been there for a while enough to see the two different sides that uh, others may assume might be there. The side where you said before, Michael, where they're, and I think you said it too, Rachel, where their focus is on uh, developers, their focus is on open source, their focus is on products versus a platform. And you can see that transition happening, not only, not only on the outside as a as what we get from them, but also the transition on the inside from employees. And I remember uh, Arnish saying, he was like, um, it was it was Garov actually, Garov Seth. He said, uh, I've been there 11 years and the last few years have been the best years ever. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he he seemed to be coming from a place where I may not have been here much longer if it didn't change. That that seemed to be the sentiment. Not he didn't say that though, but yeah. it was like Microsoft has changed so much for me as a developer to change to make me enjoy my job, allow me to do cool stuff with Chakra Core and fun stuff with Node and do stuff in the community. Whereas before, it was never like that. Yeah. I've heard that from a bunch of people. More questions. Yeah. System 76 limo right now talking more about hardware. That's from Peter Benjamin. Benjamin. What is a System 76 lemur? It's uh, uh, Linux laptops. Oh, oh interesting. That, that Intel Core i7 is, is the, the chipset that they use in the new Surface Pros as well. Cool. Um, okay. If you go to any conference where MS has a presence, you definitely get that vibe. Oh, that's a comment. That's not a question. That's not a comment. Yeah, that's why there's not a, there's not a question mark at the end. Uh, yeah. Where's the question marks? All right, everybody. <laughs> you got to ask us more questions. I got to go in four minutes. So. Ooh, four minutes. Let's do uh, random picks. I'm going to a party in a 70 room gothic mansion. Must be there on time. Yeah. Must eat in advance. Uh, I do need to eat Makeup's in advance. Makeup's going to be perfect. Obviously. On that's, point, right? I, I hate the phrase on point so okay. much. Okay. Not on point. <laughs> uh, what's the, uh, what, what's your version of on point? Spectacular? Uh, Fantastic. Rad. I don't know. Rad. Okay, rad. Yeah. Makeup, makeup's got to be rad. I forgot we're back in the 80s again. I'm yeah. always in the 80s. I mean, I grew up in the 80s, okay? So I want to go back so bad. If I hear 80s oh, yeah. music, There was a, a question about, you know what? There was a question about server-side rendering earlier that Michael can answer, and then I'll leave. <laughs> um, <laughs> hold on. I don't do any server-side rendering, so I'm actually really bad at this. I think that's really an Alex question. Like, we need mm. to get Alex on on to talk about that kind of stuff. Oh, they wanted to know about... Well, where is Alex? Is he home yet? Probably not. <laughs> probably, he's probably listening on his drive. Neither of us know anything about... Well, Michael probably knows something about server-side rendering. Um, I don't. <laughs> How about we do uh, two minutes of random picks? And Rich, you can begin. What do you think? Uh, my random pick is actually going to be... Um, a CFP that's open that people should apply to because it seems neat. And it's in Tokyo. Uh, so it's NodeFest Tokyo. And yeah, apply. I don't know. What else? I've been there. It's great. Everybody should go. I've also been. Well, you've been to NodeFest Tokyo or you've been to Tokyo? No, I've been to NodeFest Tokyo. I went to the first two or three, something like that. Nice. It's, one of the oldest, it's one of the oldest Node conferences, actually. People don't I did not that. know that. Yeah, it started the same year that I started NodeConf. 
Wow. Cool. Um, I guess the other thing I actually was looking at, there's this cool procedural generation subreddit where they just talk about procedural generation. Hold on. I'm going to burp. I muted myself for the benefit of you all. Um, so there's this library that I just linked in the channel called Too Loud that uh, lets you do noise functions. Um, there's like Perlin noise and simplex noise and a bunch of other stuff. And it's really good for generating tile sets or any other kind of uh, random procedural stuff that you need. And it makes like canvas tiles. It's pretty cool. Cool. Really cool. And now I'm leaving. <laughs> okay. Bye, Rachel. Have a good weekend. Bye. Bye. What about you, Michael? Um, let me think. Uh, okay. So there's a project called Leaflet.js. It's a pretty amazing JavaScript um, library for doing everything you ever want to do with maps. So embedding maps that work on mobile and desktop, all the interactions, putting points in, all that cool stuff. Um, there's this great company, uh, MapZen, that's... Uh, like a, a sort of cheaper and and um, slightly easier to use uh, alternative to Mapbox for embedding maps and things and, mm-hmm. and interacting with them, and uh, they use this library as their their base, and then they they provide a bunch of tiles and services for doing um, like smart routing and stuff. So I've been building a little you know app in my spare time for fun with that library, uh, and was just really really impressed with how far along this Leaflet JS thing is. Like it it does literally everything um and i mean for, for a task this huge you kind of have to be a big framework um but as far as you know big frameworks and and big big piles of code go um it's it's really actually easy to use and, and not very uh obtuse mm. yeah well my uh my pick will be something that tees up some future content for us so there was a blog post on the heroku blog talking about the rise of kotlin and we just Recorded an episode this week, which will go out in about three weeks because we have a small backlog. And uh, I'm pretty excited about this. It's uh, it was a, it was a fun conversation. My son's crying in the background because it's uh, it's time. And <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the 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 fun thing about Kotlin is it's very interesting in terms of how it's come about from a a third party product company so to speak like it comes from JetBrains. we talked about id ides earlier they're like the experts of creating ides and so rather than kotlin become being like swift is to apple kotlin is to google it's not that way it's it's actually JetBrains, a third party so it's really interesting how this language came about really interesting about how it's solving some interesting things on the jvm and uh, the power it's giving to android developers to have an alternative to to java and uh, it's a fun show so that is a good article. I'll link up in the show notes to go and check out and prep for our show coming up on Kotlin. Awesome. All right. Good stuff. And with that, that is the Ask Me Anything random live show of JS Party. This was probably the most random show we've done so far. So thanks for tuning in. And for those in Slack, thanks for hanging out. All right, thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Thanks also to our sponsors, TopTile, Century, and Hired. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. 
This show is produced by myself, Adam Stokowiak, and edited by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you've been hearing is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We do this show live every Friday at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern, noon Pacific. So join us at changelaw.com slash live. Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.